Howdy. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Listen, uh, programming note, at the bottom of this hour, that'd be like 35 after the hour, Jonathan Williams is going to join me. He's the chief economist for the American Legislative Exchange Council. He's one of the pioneers coming up with the ideas for fighting back against ESG criteria, the environmental social governance criteria the wokes are pushing Fortune 500 companies to use. Uh, Excited to have him uh, show up. So stick around. uh, Stay tuned. Be with me. 35 after this hour, you're going to want to hear this as we talk about this and let him explain what's going on. Right now, I got to talk about, well, I didn't intend for today to be thematic, but it might as well be. This is in the Washington Post today. This is the headline and the subtitle. Historians privately warn Biden that America's democracy is teetering. When Biden met with historians last week at the White House, they compared the threat of facing America to the pre-Civil War era and to pro-fascist movements before World War II. Uh, You know, he does these on occasion. He does these roundtables. Keep in mind the last time Biden met with a group of these historians, uh, they told him he could be Franklin Roosevelt, even with the 50-50 Senate. They told him to, to be, he could be the next LBJ. He could be the next FDR. And they pretty much sabotaged him. What a bubble this is. Let me read you this. Here is who was included at this discussion. John Meacham, the historian, author, former editor of Newsweek, who ran it into the ground, an occasional Biden speechwriter. Journalist Ann Applebaum, who writes for The Atlantic. Princeton professor Sean Willens. University of Virginia historian Alita Black, who's a gay rights activist who still says she loves Hillary in her Twitter bio and hates the right. And presidential historian Michael Beschloss, who has more and more increasingly shown himself to be a partisan of the left. Oh, and Anita Dunn was there as well. Listen to this. It was a small-sized gathering that was socially distanced in the White House, focusing on the rise of totalitarianism around the world and the threat to democracy at home. Biden, who was still testing positive for the coronavirus, appeared on a television monitor that was set up next to the room's fireplace, taking notes as he sat two floors up in the treaty room. Senior advisor Mike Donilon appeared on screen as well. During the discussion aloud, crack of thunder could be heard, which the participants later found out coincided with a lightning strike that killed three people in Lafayette Square. One person familiar with the exchange said the conversation was mostly a way for Biden to hear and think about the larger context in which his tenure is unfolding. Um. I, I, I got to be blunt with you here. A number of the people who are in that room are people who want to hump the president's leg. Like when they go home at night, they have sexual fantasies about Joe Biden. These are the people who are trying to tell Joe Biden about the state of the country. These are the people, and this is the problem, and I'm sorry, I can feel my blood pressure rising. <sighs> Whew. 
Just going to breathe. Just going to breathe. John Meacham and Michael Beschloss in particular. These are men who lament ordinary America. These are men who believe that the nation would be better off if a governing academic elite made all the decisions. They never liked Trump. And they despise the people who voted for Trump. They've never wanted to understand those people because they immediately concluded those people were racist and found racism in everything those people did along the way. I mentioned before, when you go into studying the Bible, for example, or really anything, if you don't want to find something, you're not going to find it. And if you want to find this one thing, you're going to find it. And Beschloss and Meacham are two people who droop with disdain for ordinary Americans. Well, they, they, so here's the thing. They love, they love the idea of the ordinary American. They just don't like any of them. They love America as they view it. They just don't like Americans. They drip with disdain for the humans while loving humanity. They are elitists who believe that the nation should be run by the wise of the Ivy League. And they're worried war is coming because the Hicks and the Rubes, they don't have to listen anymore. These are the same people who told Joe Biden to go big or go home, go for broke, and nearly destroyed his presidency. And now they want to tell him we got an authoritarian rise in this country. You know what? Let, let me let me be honest with you. You know, there is an authoritarian rise in this country, but it's on both sides. And it's both sides in response to the other side. The Democrats want authoritarian. My gosh, Gavin Newsom's going to force five-year-olds to get the COVID vaccine. He claims it's just like the MMR. That's going to undermine uptake of the MMR. The fact that the left looks on themselves as pure and virtuous and not as authoritarians and only the right is full of authoritarians is exactly why we're in the problem we're in. Because there is not only any self-awareness on the left, but they project themselves and their worst vices at all times onto the right. Some of it fairly, much of it not. The right is pretty open these days. we got to have strong people to fight back against the left. we got to have some sort of authoritarian in this country who might take power and not give it up because that's what the left wants to do, and the left does want to do that but won't acknowledge it. I think it's bad on all sides. I mean, there's this growing strain of people on the right, and it's small still, but it's growing, that the government should be used to impose the values of Christians on the country because those are the best values. I agree they're the best values. I don't think a government of sinners can impose those values on other people without corrupting those values because they're sinners. But there is that, and it comes to the logical and escapable conclusion for some of these people. If they think the government needs to decide what is in our best interests, uh, what happens when the people decide otherwise and the people want to go in a different direction and the people want to go in a direction diametrically opposed to you? Well, you can't give up power. 
I see where that heads. And there are voices on the right who want it. The problem is I can see it on the right. I recognize it among friends of mine, but I also see it on the left and no one on the left wants to acknowledge it's a thing on their side too. No one on the left wants to acknowledge that this level of authoritarian exists on their side. These are the people who want to force you to turn off your lights and air conditioner. These are the people who want to indoctrinate your children. These are the people who want to force you to get vaccines that don't actually stop you from getting sick. These are the people who demand you accept their ways of life or they will shut down your businesses because you better bake the cake, bigot. And they don't see themselves as authoritarian. They see themselves as a virtuous elite fighting against intolerance because they're very tolerant unless they have to tolerate intolerance and then they're very intolerant and intolerance is whatever it is that they don't like. There is a solution, but it's not a solution John Meacham or Michael Beschloss or Ann Applebaum is going to come up with. I mean, the solution they would inevitably come up with is you've got to use force to fight force. You've got to use the force of the presidency to fight the authoritarians. Then you become the tyrant. You cross the Rubicon. You know how we solve the fracturing of this country? We let it fracture. Let it fracture. There are 50 states into which it can fracture. And let Washington keep certain enumerated powers. And otherwise, let the states do it all. Let the states do it all. I just, I, I have this wild, crazy, cockamamie idea that um, maybe the federal government should only do a couple of things. Like, for example, uh, borrow money. Uh, regulate commerce with foreign nations and between the states to make sure that all the states are treating each other nicely. Provide uh, rules of bankruptcy around the United States so there's uniform bankruptcy code. Uh, provide the rules for how someone becomes a citizen of the United States. Uh, print all the money and, and have the, the weights and measures of the country uniform. And then provide for punishment of, of counterfeiting securities and of making coins. Maybe um, operate some national roads for commerce and post offices. Handle copyright and, and uniform trademark and patents for the nation. Have, I don't know, have, have a federal court system that can oversee these things. Um, punish stuff that happens on the high seas. Declare war for the country. Have an army and a military and be able to raise taxes for that. Have a navy. Be able to call up state-level militias to protect the union. Maybe, maybe just do those things. Maybe just do those things. That's all. That, of course, would be Section 8 of Article 1 of the Constitution. The Congress has the power to lay and collect duties, taxes, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imports, and excises shall be uniform. 
The Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and the Indian tribes, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcy, to coin money, regulate the value thereof in a foreign coin and fix the standard of weights and measures, provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, establish post roads and post offices, Promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive rights to their writings and discoveries. Constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. Define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations. Declare war. Grant letters of mark and reprisal. Make rules concerning the captures on land and water. Raise and support armies, but no appropriation shall be for longer than two years. Provide and maintain a navy. Make rules for the governing regulation of the land and naval forces. Provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. To provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. Exercise legislation in all cases whatsoever over the District of Columbia. And make all laws which are necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Maybe they should just do that. Maybe instead of fighting climate change, leave it to the states. Maybe instead of expanding government health care, leave it to the states. Maybe instead of making directives and directions on education, leave it to the states. Maybe leave a lot of stuff to the states that the federal government's doing. Maybe downsize the federal government. Maybe go back to the Constitution. You want to save the country? Washington has to stop doing so much. Because as long as Washington is doing everything, everyone makes everything about Washington. The states should be doing more. And the liberals in California can govern California and the conservatives in Texas can govern Texas. And they all recognize that they've ceded only very limited powers to Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. should not be able to shape their destiny. But if you make it all about Washington, D.C., you've concentrated power there. It becomes both sides wanting some level of authoritarianism in Washington to fight the other side. The only way to win and keep this country together long term is for Washington to give up its powers and hand them back to the states or the people and stop doing so much. Otherwise, every single thing becomes a fight about Washington. Washington becomes the fascination, fixation and fantasy of the mind. And it doesn't end well for any of us. But I bet you none of those academic elites told Joe Biden that because all of them want to be in charge. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Don't forget to sign up for the daily email, particularly the show prep. The show prep is important because you get my daily email. I am using it right now for show prep for this show because – Philip had to put a lot of links together because I was stuck in traffic. But that's why it's so useful. Text DATA to 33777. Sign up now. Let me go take Andrew's phone call. He's been waiting very patiently. Andrew, how are you? Welcome to the show. Good, Eric. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Like the show. Thank you. Um, my question was to you, could the Republicans have killed this uh, bill in the Senate by doing something maybe a little gutsy? actually taking like a poison pill, signing on to like some of Bernie Sanders' amendments, 
because they went down in flames. They went down 99 to 1, 97 to 3. So if the Republicans actually passed them, joined Bernie and actually passed them, that bill would have become so toxic, even the Dems couldn't vote for it. Would that have worked? I so I don't know because I my suspicion is that what would have happened is that the Democrats ultimately would have gone sucked it up and gone along with it, um, and so the Republicans would have made it even worse. Uh, the Democrats thought, were so desperate for a win they would have let these Bernie Sanders amendments go through. I just thought these Sanders amendments were so wild out there that Schumer might have had to yank the bill off the floor, and not even put it up for a well vote amendments. Yes, uh, I would think so, too, except in this case, they were so desperate to be seen as doing something. I think they would have let them slide. I don't know that uh, the the parliamentarian would rule some of them germane, but some of them would have gotten through. It would have made it even more expensive. It would have would have been even worse. And so I don't really blame the Republicans for not doing it. Um, I, I really don't um, because it was just such a terrible, awful piece of legislation to begin with and you vote for those things the democrats were desperate 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 for a win uh they would have they would have proceeded uh even if the bill had been made worse they would have absolutely proceeded so there's that that's the problem um yeah, there's no way to rescue it now it, it's going to go through the house of representatives uh, it should be signed this weekend by the president uh and your costs will start going up i mean electric vehicle costs are already going up in response, y'all, it's not a coincidence that major electric vehicle manufacturers in this country are raising prices on their electric vehicles by $7,500. That is the amount of the tax credit. So they're still going to get the same amount of money, but you're going to feel like you're saving $7,500 and buying at the price it was. This stuff is already happening, uh, but the Democrats were desperate. It's not going to matter, though. And I want to talk a little bit about that, uh, that it is, it's, it's not going to matter because the data is just so bad out there right now. There's so much out there that so clearly is wrong with the economy. It's only going to get worse. A recession is coming. I just don't see that the Democrats are going to be able to pull this sort of thing off. I just don't see it happening. Uh, some massive Democratic wave to counter the Republican wave. Uh, and I want to talk about the data when we come back because we should be, make this data-based. We should look at what the data shows, and we can assess from there exactly what's going on. Because remember, they all acknowledged the polling was broken, and they don't know how to fix it. And that's the relevant point. Call your friends. Tell them they need to listen. But first, we got a great interview when we come back. Hi there. It is Eric Erickson here nationwide from Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Joining me right now, I've been talking about um, ESG, the environmental, social, and governance criteria that the wokes are pushing corporations to use to run their businesses. And one, they're bad typically for shareholders of companies because the companies are making more expensive propositions and they're divesting from things like uh, fossil fuels, driving up their own costs. Um, and it's just it's the way the left, in lieu of capturing government to impose their will on government, it's captured business to impose their will to the detriment of shareholders and uh, American individuals. You who have a 401k or pension plan or the like, you're having your 
uh, investments uh, degraded to a degree because of what this ESG criteria does to businesses. Well, one of the great groups that's out there figuring out a way to fight this back against this is the American Legislative Exchange Council. They were meeting here in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago and really took on this issue. Joining me by phone is their chief economist, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan, welcome to the program. How are you? I am doing great. Thanks for having me on. And as always, uh, greetings from the land of make-believe here in Washington, D.C. Oh, man. So in that land of make-believe, they are a lot of uh, groups out there on the left pushing ESG. I've talked to the audience and tried to explain it from my vantage point, but you being an economist, can you just explain what is the environmental social governance criteria? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's actually a really good question. I don't, I'm not sure that anybody can define it outside of their own purview. Right? <laughs> I think if you ask 100 people on the street, you get 100 different answers. I think the way that I've seen it is it's being you know, weaponized, certainly by the left, and uh, their takeover of, of uh, many parts of corporate America. Of course, as you know, Eric, you've documented many times how Alec was unfortunately kind of the, the tip of the spear of how the left came after us uh, with cancel culture and going after the corporate supporters of Alec and of course, that's continued as corporations have bowed to this pressure from the activist left. And, uh, you know, ESG is the most recent iteration of that. Uh, but I almost, you know, think that uh, sometimes you have to be able to define something in order to criticize it, right? It's almost a, such a moving target. It's so difficult to pin down actually what people mean by this. Essentially, it's just uh, being used to uh, grow government, to grow progressive control over corporate America in many cases. And now, as we've seen play out, as you just mentioned, uh, really take over many of the investment decisions uh, that really matter to all of our retirements, whether it's our 401ks or police officers and firefighters and their pension systems across the country. Well, and in so doing, can, can you just as an economist uh, explain just what it does to the rate of return for a lot of these companies once they, they embrace ESG? Yeah, and that's a great uh, area of study that we at Alec have uh, put together a lot of research on over the years, even before ESG became somewhat of a household acronym in recent uh, months, uh, now that it's uh, made such headline news with the listing of even Elon Musk and Tesla from ESG index funds and all the other ways that it's made the news. Uh, we put together a report called uh, Keeping the Promise, Getting Politics Out of Pensions uh, four or five years ago at our Alex Center for State Fiscal Reform. And we look back now and use the work of some academic researchers as well that went back 50 years and show that if people just concentrate on getting the most return that you can for your investment funds versus divesting, let's say, away from energy companies and energy stocks as part of your portfolio, how big of a difference does that make? Essentially, that's how ESG plays out in a lot of ways. States are divesting from fossil fuel companies as part of the strategy. And it turns out you lose nearly one percentage point of return per year over that 50-year period that was studied by these academics. And so we're talking about that compound difference being the difference between having a nice nest egg and having something that's uh, really questionable whether you'd be able to have a retirement off of that nest egg. So we're talking about huge loss of returns. And this is something that's, quite frankly, uh, should be criminal. That's going on in state pension systems across the country. And these are kind of Enron-style accounting that's being used in state and local governments that allows this to uh, happen in states uh, just 
just like Maine last year, Eric, was the first state in America during the 2021 legislative session to uh, fully uh, vote to divest all of its asset holdings, including its pension system, from all fossil fuel companies over the next few years. And, of course, we're seeing states uh, follow behind, and and probably this is going to be a big threat in uh, 2023 in many of the left-wing states. Gosh, and I mean, it just it seems like they're the purity of their cause, so to speak, particularly fighting climate is is more important to them than it is to get a good return for pension funds. Very, very much like the Dutch now shutting down uh, a fifth of their farms and reducing the number of uh, flights that take off and land at Schiphol Airport in the name of fighting climate change, even if it costs them money. Uh, given all the pension problems we've had in the country in the last 20 years or so, you would think they would want to maximize their investments for their pension holders. That's too much common sense, Eric. I mean, this is, <laughs> you would think if you're in the business of pensions, you ought to be in the business of maximizing long-term returns. I mean, something we at, at Alex study every year is we estimate the unfunded liabilities across all of the city and state pension funds across the country, and we show that it's more than $8 trillion dollars uh, in our most recent findings at alec.org, you can check that out. But even the Wall Street Journal this week just reported that state and city pensions had their worst investment year since 2009 in the financial crisis. And so it's not like these left-wing states like California and Maine and, and Illinois and New Jersey, you know, have a lack of pension, uh, you know, problems. They have some huge issues here they need to solve from a funding perspective if they're going to keep these promises to, to police and fire and teachers and all the rest. Uh, but, you know, they're making the problem that much worse by sacrificing return in the name of this ESG or whatever uh, progressive ideology they claim to represent in these states. Now, so let's talk about some solutions here, because I know states like West Virginia and Texas and others, its state treasurers have said uh, you, you, you we're not going to do business with you if you don't invest in fossil fuels. And I was kind of struck by the names of some of the companies that are uh, embracing ESG and putting pressure on companies from Wells Fargo to, I mean, BlackRock, I knew my 401k is at Vanguard. I was kind of surprised that they are as into it as they are and and makes me question uh, management of my 401k. So you've got these state treasurers popping up saying you're, you're not allowed to do this with our pensions. Well, it's a great group, State Financial Officers Foundation. I'm a senior policy advisor as well uh, with that organization. And they've had some great principled treasurers out there saying, hey, this is a real problem and uh, pushing back. You know, and most recently in West Virginia, Treasurer Riley Moore uh, had uh, said we're not going to do business with uh, several of these banks that have uh, treated West Virginia and thermal coal in that way. Uh, but one, I think, deserves some positive reinforcement. I think that was U.S. Bank that decided to pull back against its anti-energy policies. And so they are able to do business, continue with uh, West Virginia going forward. So it's rare these days. But, I mean, that's a, a great uh, story of a company that has seen, like, maybe we shouldn't play politics with these investment decisions, and uh, they're rewarded as a result. Yeah, and, and, you know, I guess one of my frustrations here, and, and for those of you just tuning in, I'm talking with Jonathan Williams. He's the chief economist for the American Legislative Exchange Council. They've been looking into these criterias that investment managers are using to divest from fossil fuels, and it's not just fossil fuels. It's other things as well. Uh, and, and, Jonathan, I, I'm kind of struck by um, the the growing awareness now that this is happening, but also the fact that it just seems like there is a group out there that is intent on politicizing everything, and, and I don't know that we want our 401ks politicized. That's right. I mean, shouldn't we just focus on our long-term returns? 
Yeah. If you looked at your statement any time in the last six months, like I did, I almost fell out of my chair. Let's let's make sure our 401ks don't become 201ks, and let's make sure we just make the best long-term financial decisions to make that happen, regardless of the politics. And, you know, that's one of the things that we at Alec have developed as a solution set with a new piece of model legislation, you know, with, with pensions. And to say, these pensions are in bad enough shape. Let's make sure that all of the decisions that are made by the fiduciaries, those that oversee state and local pensions, are made with the sole interest of the beneficiary at mind and the long-term interest of that to maximize returns. I mean, this is my co-author of our book, Rich States, Poor States, Art Laffer, who I know you've had on many times, Mm -hmm. like to say, you know, this isn't rocket surgery. This is kind of financial planning 101 here. Let's just focus on long-term returns. And that's what the new ALEC model piece of legislation does, is that fiduciary duty piece. Many states have that on the books, uh, but it's something I think every state should take a look at. Well, I, I know here in Georgia, actually, while we're sitting here talking, I've gotten text messages from a couple of state legislators here in Georgia saying uh, they actually are looking at that model legislation. So can you just a- explain more generally for, for people who may not know what model legislation is and, and what it's for? Yeah, so Alec has been around for nearly 50 years now. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary next year. Of course, we were just in Atlanta, as you mentioned, for our 49th annual meeting. And one of the things that Alec is known for is developing best practices of what works and what doesn't across our 50 laboratories of democracy that we have. And so model legislation is brought to us from state legislators who maybe want to bring a good idea from their state of something they've supported back home to say, we want to recommend this. That's a free market, limited government and federalism based policy that Alec members could endorse in one of our policymaking task forces. And then we put that up on alec.org with about 900 pieces of model legislation that we've come up with over our nearly 50 years as pieces that we know are tried and true of free markets and limited government and federalism-based policies. And so the idea would be then, you know, obviously every state needs to take that and and change it to meet the needs of their particular state code or state tax system or whatever the the case may be. But at least it's a starting point to say this is based generally on a state law and it's uh, something that we think is successful and also principled from a free market perspective. And so this newest piece of model policy, I think, is going to be we're getting tons of attention. We had many legislators come up after we did a session with the great Andy Puzder and Steve Moore and others at the Atlanta annual meeting saying this is something that we need to do to protect the integrity of our pension system. If we're going to make these promises, we need to keep the promises. And to do that, we need to keep politics out of pensions. Amen to that. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking time to come by and, and talk, and hopefully state legislators around the country will, will listen and or voters will and call their state legislatures and say to take a look at it. That, I think that's just as important. Thank you, Jonathan, very much for spending some time with me on this. Absolutely. Keep up the great work. We'll stay in touch. Thanks very much. Jonathan Williams with the American Legislative Exchange Council. If you are interested in getting your state to pass their model legislation, uh, essentially they they write the legislation and then your state legislators tweak it for your individual state's rules. Uh, Make sure your state legislators know about ALEC. Most of the conservative ones do and that they have this. Really important here because if you go back, as Jonathan was saying, If you go back and you look at the rate of return on investments, the companies that have started using ESG criteria tend to have reduced returns. 
in large part because they divest themselves from high-growth, long-term growth-stable companies because a lot of those happen to be in the energy sector or they don't have enough uh, diversity on their boards and things like that. Uh, and it's a way for them to also pressure companies to do that. Uh, maybe not the best fit for the company. So get your state legislature to consider passing the model legislation that Alec advocates for, and uh, you might be able to save your 401k and your pension in your state. I mean, right now you got to do everything possible to save your 401k. Have you seen them? Like Jonathan said, they're becoming 201ks. It's bad. Uh, I would highly recommend you consider reaching out to my friends at Gold Co. if you have any interest at all in using physical gold and silver to manage the ebbs and flows of your portfolio. Call them at 855-904-5933. You'll get a free wealth protection kit to learn how to use gold and silver to protect and grow your money. Thousands of retirees are protecting their retirement savings. Many are getting $10,000 or more in free silver for doing it. So call Gold Co., see if you qualify for their special offer. They've helped thousands of Americans protect their retirement against inflation and stock market crashes. They might be able to help you teaching you how to use physical gold and silver to manage your portfolio. Call them 855-904-5933 or just text ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. I'll text you their toll-free number. Text ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you would like to be a part of this here program. Uh, Well, OPEC has cut oil demand forecasts. The oil demand forecast. What is the oil demand forecast? It is the forecast of... How much oil is going to be demanded by the world? And OPEC says the economy is slowing globally. Supply and demand were closer balanced. So there are a couple of reasons that gas prices have come down. One of them is that people just had to frankly cut back. They weren't using as much. Uh, and the result was that supply and demand could balance out. The other was because the global economy is slowed down. China's not using as much oil because its economy is slowing. They're having all sorts of uh, real estate uh, economic problems there, among other things. So you, you got multiple problems. And uh, the result, the result is that – uh, oil demand is expected to go down. Uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal. In its closely watched monthly market report, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries cut its forecast for global oil demand this year by 260,000 barrels to 100.03 million barrels a day. It also cut its demand forecast for 2023 by the same amount to 102.72 million barrels a day. OPEC's revisions come as oil prices have eased significantly from the highs they hit in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Fears about slowing economic growth and signs of respite from a global energy crisis have undercut oil prices. While OPEC lowered its forecast for global economic growth this year and next, it said demand for oil, while more modest, would still be robust. The economy is slowing down. And with an economy slowing down, 
more people are trying to save their money, more people are tapped into savings, and the inflation rhetoric from the Biden administration isn't playing well. This is Frank Lutz. He was on, I think, Fox News yesterday talking about Biden claiming 0% inflation. I just want to say a number. Zero. Today, we received news that our economy had 0% inflation in the month of July. 0%. Here's what that means. While the price of some things go up, went up last month, the price of other things went down by the same amount. The result, zero inflation last month. But people were still hurting. But zero inflation last month. That was President Biden weighing in on the CPI data at the White House event yesterday. But uh, for more in for more on this inflation and really the administration's response, I want to bring in pollster and political strategist Frank Luntz. Frank, so you don't like this at all. You think this was a terrible, terrible mistake, it sounds like. Why? It's because it's cynical. It is a destruction of the meaning of words. It's Orwellian at its worst. It's the kind of job that I do as a language guy, as someone who tries to find the words and phrases to connect to the American people. But as a pollster, I know how much it plays into our belief that we can't trust our elected officials and we can't trust our institutions. You know, we've been polling this issue and the American people think that it's harder now to make it, to get by. More than 70 percent of Americans have trouble making ends meet. One out of four literally have trouble paying their bills at the end of the week or end of the month because of inflation. And for Joe Biden to redefine what that means and to attempt to do it for the word recession is really the thing that the American people should be angriest about. Yes, they should. It is Orwellian. When we come back, they can't hide the data because you feel the data. And I want to go through the data with you because increasingly we don't have an inflation crisis. We have an affordability crisis. You can't afford things that just a few months ago you could. You can't afford a lot in this country. And it's a new dynamic that did not exist before Joe Biden became president. And people are furious. We need to talk about the affordability crisis that's happening right now in the country as we head into an economic slowdown. And also, as you are buying school supplies for your kids and you can't even afford all of those – 